0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. This is the second part of a two part series looking at the best of Danger Close from 2021. If you like any of these clips, be sure to find the full episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Jack Carr YouTube channel and thank you to 6 hour for making all of this possible everything from this podcast to the sig hunter games the first ever sig hunter games out in wyoming hope we get to do that again because it was an absolute blast you can find out more if you go to officialjackcar.com scroll down in the blog and you can find out what that was all about but sig was on board well before i even had a social media presence before i had a book published and they've just been partners and friends for the longest time. And I cannot thank them enough for their support at every level of that incredible company that continues to lead the way. So Sig, keep crushing. Thank you for everything and looking forward to what we have planned in 2022. This clip comes from my conversation with John Norris. John was a game warden in California for over 20 years. He is the author of Hidden War and War in the Woods. In this clip, we talk about him finding a cartel grow site on America's
1: public land. But it was really when I got back up to Silicon Valley, when I took that transfer and promoted to be a lieutenant in 2005, right before that in 04, and the first chapter of the first book, War in the Woods, really goes into this, that I discovered my first you know, trespass cartel grow in an area that was so sensitive environmentally, it was it was the perfect storm for the worst type of situation. And um, just to abbreviate that and not, you know, go too far into the book for, for times, uh, you know, issues. Um, good friend of mine that was a wildlife biologist that we all grew up with, <clears throat> excuse me, working on his master's thesis on steelhead trout, red-legged, yellow-legged frog, all these threatened and endangered species, literally in the headwaters of Coyote Creek that Henry Coast state park where i met that game warden you know back in college the headwaters feed that and that is one of the last steelhead migrating streams that goes all the way to the pacific ocean out of the south san francisco bay that's how sensitive this waterway is Um, and the fish that migrate and everything he was studying for this five-year study and about year three in 2004 i get a call and a gi codenamed in the first book um, says John, this is some crazy man. Uh, one of my streams is flowing great. It's April. We have all this winter runoff, fish, fry, uh, frogs. Everything's good, but I got a totally dry stream on one end. All this plastic and junky debris in a dry stream, and everything's dead. And that's, wow. uh, you know, oh crap, what does that mean? And so, from a traditional standpoint, I'm thinking, is a cattleman diverting water for a cattle operation? Is it an agricultural water diversion? That's typically the streambed alteration cases, Jack, that we would see on the traditional side. So, I put him in the truck, take him to the top of the mountain, we dive deep just into you Just a- without you, a, without a partner, just you and him? Just me and him. That's okay. it, yeah. in those days, you know, um if we had a ride along that was savvy and we weren't going into anything that we you know um kind of had a a threat matrix workup like we would operationally now, it didn't have any any clues whatsoever that it would be anything but a typical sedate water diversion. So I throw him in the truck. And with that, and what do you have on you? Like without being prepared ahead of time, like knowing,
0: hey, we're going into this grow. What do you have on you? What is it? Just a sidearm, or do you have a rifle in the in the truck as well? What are you carrying at this point?
1: Yeah, that that was before we had an official battle rifle, which I'll talk about with you. Being another uh, another firearms guy like myself, um, we were carrying a hodgepodge of stuff as long as we could qualify, get them armor inspected, and I ran an M4. Um, I ran an M4 uh, with a Trigicon a cog on it. Uh, I ran, you know, with uh, bonded rounds and the 556, knowing that I was going into very brushy terrain and having, you know, hunted all my life with bigger calibers and knowing how these bullets perform, um, I could kind of pick my ammo at the time. So that was cool. I had the M4, I had my Glock duty pistol, Glock 22 40 calibers what we were issued at the time. And, you know, my partner, GI who I'm going in with, very savvy and proficient with weapons, field craft is top notch, second to none in the woods. A lot of hunting time, but he's an unarmed civilian and I can't really have him armed on an operation. So he's a very good asset, but doesn't have a firearm. And okay. we're going to go in here. I've got a radio, I've got a cell phone, but of course we dive into a canyon. There's no radio coverage. There's no cell service. And wow. we're going straight down a mountain about a thousand feet. And then we get into the canyon. It's like a pristine grand canyon of waterway and it's bone dry. And there's the water diversion where they, the cartel guys have built up a check dam. They've got a water pipe going down a dry creek And it's kind of follow the rabbit hole, you know, what are you going to find at the end of the end of the pipe? And sure enough, as we stalked carefully and concealed down through that canyon, we started to see, you know, 18 to 24 inch tall marijuana plants on both sides of the creek, all the bank vegetation gone, which is a big environmental problem. Uh, Then we started to see, you know, camouflaged encampments and hooches and a kitchen and a cooking area. Big bags of fertilizer. Had no idea at the time. These EPA banned poisons that we started to learn about much later in the game. They were all in there: the carbofuran, the metaphos, uh, the nerve agent. You know that's banned from use in America for any agriculture. Uh, cartels have to smuggle it through the border infiltration or from the oceans in pangas. You know, um, get it in Tijuana. And then we run into two growers and they're in od green bdus and they've got their you know their cartel monikers uh embedded and you know kind of woven into their belt buckles and uh they're the patron saint stuff i talk about in hidden war and you know that whole you know kind of ideology of what type of culture that uh encourages as far as environmental destruction and drug crimes and human trafficking and they've got ak's and they've got machetes and Jack, no joke. I, you know, I think about all the operations you've done in your career and all the ones I've done on my side of the world. And I have never seen guys that were so protected, knowing no one was in the area, yet so situationally aware. Wow. I mean, their field craft was top-notch. They would, they would be a two-man unit. And as they were tending their plants, they would whisper and not talk. One would always, every couple minutes, Look over the shoulder and check the six o'clock, check the tail gunner, like a tail gunner on a, on a stack, like we would run. And whoever was like chopping plants or tending a water hose, the other one would kind of sit back and just have that situational awareness and be like a cover, a cover guy.
0: Wow. And there's no so way you run into like, these first two guys. Are you like coming around, like come behind a tree and you're like, and you like steering the headlights, you both see each other. No, or do you see them from a ways <laughs> off or you get the binos out and you're like, like, what was that yeah. situation like?
1: Thankfully, it wasn't the it wasn't the former man, because <laughs> if, if we had gone eye to eye and uh, knowing not knowing what, uh, you know, not knowing what I would know later in that situation, it was going to be a gunfight for sure. Did you, the, and you're on foot. Do you have your M4 with you or do you leave that in the car? Oh, no. The M4, as you soon as that. I dive out of it, as soon as I lose sight of the truck, the rifle goes with me, you know, okay. on, on any. And that was before nice. any special operations unit. It's just how we trained our guys. And okay. our firearms training was really state of the art. You know, it was keeping up with the best law enforcement. We were getting a lot of stuff back from the sandbox, from you guys on the military side, especially special forces we were training with ind- independently. Um, I had a, I got a lot of training in Southern California when I was down with Forest Service, starting my career with the third special forces group, you know, which was freaking fantastic. I got to jump in with that opportunity and, and that doesn't normally happen. So it was starting early and then fast forward to the Silicon Valley drop into this Canyon. Um, we are just hugging the bank, just kind of using field craft. Like we're stalking animals, going in real quiet, doing slow peaks, moving slow. Okay. And when we got to see them and they had their backs to us and we're kind of above us a little bit, but we were in a cut bank in the Creek below them. We hugged the bank. We held tight. You know, we were pieing out real careful. I always carry a tiny pocket pair of binoculars. We love those little Leica, those eight by twenties or those ten by twenty twos. It's something I bought for the entire Met team when we formed up the unit because those little binos you can, you know, put up so slowly mm. without being a target indicator. Very little movement and peek out, and you can really see details. And sure nice. enough, that's when I saw what they were doing. And they were maybe at the time fifty yards away. They were not far. And we just had to hold position as they started to work our way. And I was waiting for that, you know, here we go moment, ready to go. And just not the situation I wanted to happen with an unarmed civilian with me. No radio coverage. This was going to be a hard one to explain for sure if I went loud. And they got to about 15 yards and they tended some plants very, very close to us. I mean, it was it was crazy. And then they made that hook and drifted out of the canyon and doubled back. Wow. So that was an eye-opener and once we got them out of the area I looked at Di and, and jack i just went all right man we got the location marked we got a ping let's get out of here we kind of did a, a quiet bounding overwatch uphill and out got to the truck and just had that processing moment when i got to coverage and then i what's next man what does the game warden do in a situation like that i just saw what i would later learn is the biggest environmental criminal we have in california and now in 25 other states for just the cannabis side of things Um, had no idea they were involved in running human trafficking operations all over the country like they do now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you look at the synthetic fentanyl killing so many people from dirty labs Mm -hmm. back east. Um, That's all generated by these same cartel groups. It's just a different division of work they do in their business model. Um, The prescription drug, the opiates, the gun running, um, the the children, sex trafficking, it's all embedded. So we were actually stumbling onto a level of environmental criminal that affected the country on a, a deeper level beyond just wildlife but we didn't know any of that yet. So yeah. that was the first exposure. And then bringing in a task force of, of uh, drug officers that f- you know focus on that. And now I'm going to just be the advisor because I've never done this. That was the technically the first operation I went on where we did uh, an apprehension attempt, a full eradication of a grow. And then unfortunately, because it wasn't SOPs for the non-conservation guys on the team to actually clean that mess up environmentally and bring the waterway back, uh, we didn't reclimate the growth site, but it was sure an eye-opener. And that, that started the direction long-windedly of where I would go next into building Med eventually and getting the right guys and where we're at now.
0: This clip comes from my conversation with Brad Thor, number one New York Times best-selling author of the Scott Harvath series. In this clip, he gives advice to young writers. And then I just thought you know, that when you go into anything in the private sector, that, uh, that it's going to be a competition, um, but maybe not necessarily a competition for a team because you're coming from this team background in, uh, in the military. And then I thought people were going to keep me at arm's length when I got into publishing and, and it was going to be very difficult. And it was the exact opposite. Exact opposite has been true. And uh, people have welcomed me with open arms and it's been incredible. But on that call, you told me one thing that helped so much. Uh, and you said, give yourself permission to write a bad chapter. And for whatever reason, that like that freed me up from this worry of, hey, what if this chapter is not good enough as you're going along? And to have that be okay. Like, it was. Fu- if, if it's not good, hey, you know what? You can edit. It's not like you're on the battlefield making a decision. And if you make a bad one, people are going to die. You can sleep on it.
2: You can come back the next day. You can't edit what hasn't been written. And that actually, that, um, you know, it's, it's funny, the similarities between you and me, as far as, you know, I had family in Coronado. You obviously spent a ton of time down there with the SEAL teams. I ended up in Park City for eight years. My kids were born just down in Salt Lake. Um, when we moved from Park City to Chicago, we my wife was the doc for the U.S. ski team, and she had a chance to go back and be a doc for the Bulls and the White Sox in Chicago, and we wanted to be closer to our families in the Midwest, so we moved back. And I moved into a house, see, you're going through a move now, that the renovations weren't complete. And I was writing this intense book. I was writing Takedown at the time, and I was having a lot of writer's block. And that piece of advice I gave you was the first time I'd ever had any writer's block. It was just so much pressure and so many things going on. And I found that piece of advice in people who know writing quotes will know who said it. But it was, a, I believe, it was a, a woman who's an author who said, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. And, uh, that can be, you know, you can break that down to just a crummy chapter because you're right. You can come back to it the next day, but you can't edit what hasn't been written. So, uh, there's that other thing that said, if the, if the taps not open, the water don't flow. Right. So you got to sit down at your desk and open the
0: tap. Oh yeah. And for, that gave me that, that gave me this, uh, this freedom to sit down and write it lifted a huge weight off my shoulders as I was going forward. So hearing that from you was uh, w- w- helped me so much along this path. So I try to pass that on to, to other people when they ask me about advice and uh, and also what was great when I was coming in is that I didn't have a Facebook account. I didn't have an Instagram account. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any of that sort of thing yet as a distraction. Because I was still in I mean, the as a SEAL, you don't
2: set this up? You don't do that as a
0: SEAL? Say, <laughs> they might hey, now. They might now in third in. phase. It's possible. It's possible. Along with the writing classes and the you know the the, the interview technique courses and that sort of thing. But uh, but yeah, back then. Look it, at this guy that,
2: caught planting a bomb next to the side of the road. you giving him noogies <laughs> on your Instagram.
0: Quick, yeah, quick. Quick, get a selfie. Uh, yeah, document it. But it's so different today that I think people would be thinking about that sort of thing a lot more. Uh, whereas I just had to think about the book. And uh, I think in that all call, you also told me that, hey, for nonfiction, you you do, you uh, you can sell a chapter, you can sell an idea, you know, that sort of thing. For fiction, it has to be done. And so when I talk to people today, that's what I tell them. Hey, get it done. Don't worry about marketing. Don't worry about a website. Don't worry about any of that thing. Get it to be the best that it can possibly be. Uh, and then move on to that next stage and find that agent, find that publisher, whatever you're going to do from there. But get it Done, and that's the other thing you told me when I called you back a year later. This was the best part because I was done. Like, whoo, made it. I made my time. I made my made my my first deadline. Uh, it's a uh, like the day before I called you. Boom, it's done, Brad. And, uh, and then you said, "Hey, is it as good as you can possibly make it?" And I said, "Well, I could probably go back and read it a couple times, <laughs> maybe edit it a little bit." And uh, you said, "Okay." Call me back when it is as good as you can possibly make it. So I spent the rest of that summer, uh, late spring through the summer to the fall, getting it as good as I could possibly be. I got to that point where if I worked on it for another 40 years, it would get better by a degree. Nobody noticed the difference. Yeah, exactly. So because you could do that. People could keep doing that forever and making it better. And yeah, they probably would make their manuscript better if they spent another 40, 50, 60 years on it. But by... A degree, and then you're never getting published. Uh, so, you got to get it out there and get it to that point where you're, you're comfortable and you are happy with it. And then, and then I called you back and said, It's as good as I could possibly make it. And you said, All right, let's do this. This clip comes from my conversation with my friend, Jim Shockey. Jim, of course, is a hunter, an outfitter, a guide, a videographer, a photographer, writer, all around incredible human being who I am honored to call a friend in this clip he talks about the best advice he's ever received
3: like like, you know back to what what we were talking about earlier you get one life so so why not why not live the life that you're destined to live not a life that someone else tells you you have to live or should live or for whatever reason you know i'm a doctor son so you got to be a doctor no you don't you know my dad was a road construction superintendent yeah, and and a heavy duty mechanic. I'm sure his and and a pilot that he had to mm-hmm. stop flying when he got married because he couldn't afford, you know, to actually fly his own airplane. So, wow. so he uh, he gave that up. You know, so he, he, I, yeah, I mean he read every single airplane magazine that ever existed and had to live vicariously through a, you know, a 49 cent magazine and and listen to the airplanes talk on his little, I don't know, VHF whatever. Yeah. Oh, around, and, and, you know, but he, he couldn't fly, you know, didn't have the money, had to raise kids and, you know, bought one gun in his life that got stolen eventually out of my safe in our ranch. But anyway, lot that's another story. You get, you get, you get one life. So, you know, live it, live it. I, I, I say, you know, people are afraid of, of failing, you know, afraid of, well, I, I don't know if I can do that. And it, what if I fail? You know, I, and I say, if, if you, spend your whole life sitting on a couch at home worried about what might happen. Nothing ever will. That'll be it. That'll be it. Your entire life will be on that couch. Nothing happened. You know, good job. You know, you got to get out there and, and try things. And to me, I've, I've never been afraid to try. <laughs> I've suffered the slings and arrows and you know, it doesn't really hurt that bad. It's like, you don't like me? Really? You know, I, I'm, I'm no less a person because I fail. If that novel never gets published, it, you know, it won't, be, it won't be because I'm a lesser person. I don't take that person. I know how good it is. Yeah, you know, I know how good I am. I know what I've done. So, so I, that's what, when you live your life true to who you are, you, you never have a regret ever. Yeah. I can't even imagine being on my deathbed and, oh, you know, there was one thing I wish. No, no. There's nothing, and you—you know, you lived it. You know, you know, you know. I mean, I don't know if they're in the thousands, hundreds. You know, lots of people that that uh, live that same thing. Yeah. And it, and it's that's when you can look somebody in the eye, anybody in the eye, and say, "Yeah, I'm your equal." You know, there's nobody better. There may, you know, you equal, yes, but nobody better. And you know, it sounds arrogant, but it's not. It's just, it's just, you know, who you are, and and. <laughs> You know, this is the best I can be, and and that's how I've always lived my life, uh, fearlessly and and uh, and and as honestly, truthfully, with honor. I mean, all those those good things.
0: This clip comes from my conversation with Peter Bergen. Peter is a journalist, an author, security analyst, terrorism analyst, and the author of numerous books, to include his latest, "The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden." In this clip. He talks about meeting Osama bin Laden in 1997. What was that like? What was that feeling like? Was it the first time you'd been blindfolded to go to an interview, and uh, and then once you're there in this cave? I mean, were you worried about being beheaded back then, or uh, was this just kind of the the what you did in that part of the world if you wanted to interview yeah. with someone like this?
4: I was tremendously excited, to be honest. I mean, we were. I mean, I we were not allowed to film any of this, and obviously, it would you know, it was like. It was filmed by they their show. cameras. It was by, by Bin Laden's cameras, right? We, yeah. So we, and we couldn't film any of the, like, what was happening to us, how we got there, mm-hmm. all that. I mean, it was very, you know, of course, it was exciting. Uh, at the time, I was not worried because, A, they invited us, and, B, this is before they killed Danny Pearl, the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. reporter who Al-Qaeda essentially kidnapped and, and murdered in January of 2002. And, and then sort of the rules of the game change. It's going to be half of younger uh, people who were listening to this to remember that there was a time when journalists, aid workers and 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 you know, priests, nuns, you know, you know, people non were really treated in wartime as, you know, kind of they were non-combatants. And so if you were an aid worker, you didn't have to worry about being kidnapped. Or if you were a journalist, you didn't have to be worried about being kidnapped or shot at or whatever. I mean, uh, but those rules kind of changed and obviously the the ISIS made it even worse. But so I wasn't concerned about them doing anything to us. Um, I, you know, they it, it was their first television interview, so it, would, so it would be weird to to then sort of do something to us. Clearly, they were very concerned about did we have a tracking device, and if we if they found one on us, I think they would have definitely, you know, that would have been very bad news for us. But, but we didn't have one, and um, and the interview proceeded, and you know, he was uh, very you know, very low-key, and he declared um, war on the United States. So it was the first time he'd done so to a kind of Western audience. It was his first TV interview. He spoke in Arabic, even though he speaks English, because he wanted to, you know, be very precise about what he was saying in his native language, and uh, people around him treated him with a lot of respect, and they kind of called him the Sheikh, and they hung on his every word, and you know, we, he he delivered this interview, and and, and I it was the middle of this probably three o'clock in the morning by the time he left, and we uh you know uh we went back to our hotel and went back to the United States and we edited the interview and it went out i think on some early may twenty uh, 1997 and it kind of just went out and it just landed with a thud because you know no one no one knew what to make of it because right. it was sort of he hadn't done anything yet mm-hmm. um. Uh, and there were people at the U.S. government who were interested in him, but it was a very small group. Yeah, I want to ask you about them
0: them later. It's a fascinating yeah. cast of, of characters, and you talk to a lot of them in uh, the Manhunt documentary, and you talk about a lot of them in, the, in this book as, as well. Um, so did you realize, even though that the interview didn't... Uh, he hadn't done the the East Africa embassy bombings yet. There was no coal yet. Obviously there's no nine 11 yet. Um, did you realize what you had and who you had been been talking to and what his capabilities were going forward? Cause wasn't it the first time that he uh, on television really declares war against the, the West? Um, and so did it sink in how significant um, he was as a person and uh, the movement he led, how, how, much of an impact that was going to have on the future, or what? What did you? Or did you just go on to the next assignment?
4: No, I mean, I I thought it was. Look, I put a lot of effort into making this happen, and we had put a lot of effort. We, my colleagues, CNN. You know, my bosses at CNN, who I I must credit, Pam Hill and the late John Lane. You know, they when not, we went in '93, and they gave you know, It was very expensive, and it was very lengthy, and it was very uncertain about what was going to happen. And we made this documentary and then I went back to them in 97. I said this is guy bin Laden, I think he's behind the behind the Trade Center attack in 93. And they didn't know who Bin Laden was, but they you know, they had a lot of faith in in me and us and the process. <laughs> they let us go and do it. And and, and uh, uh, so to their credit, but but you know, because he he had actually done some things, but we weren't aware of them. Mm-hmm. And he actually mentioned them in the interview, and I didn't even know what he was talking about. At one point he talked about this victory in Aden. Now, years later, I kind of worked out what he meant, which is his guys had bombed two hotels in Yemen in Aden, which were housing American servicemen who were on their way to Somalia. The bombs had killed the tourists; no American servicemen were killed. You know, we didn't know that had happened, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. it mentioned in the interview. Um, so now I always I was puzzled by this reference for a while. <laughs> um, but so that's all by way of saying, you know, he gave these, he made all these threats, but it wasn't clear to us that he. Was going to do anything about it it was only you know pretty much a year later august 7th 1988 and he built two u.s embassies in africa and then it was clear to anybody that he was a real problem because not only did he kill you know, he killed 212 civilians you know he, he had no compunction about it there was no warning a number of them were muslims because kenya and tanzania where the bombs went off or have big muslim populations um he killed 12 americans and 200 africans he didn't have any problem about it at all. And usually, you know, the interesting thing about terrorists in the past is that they had, they tried to avoid, you know, these mass casualty attacks because they could backfire, lead to a crackdown, you might lose your support, any support you might have, and Bin Laden just didn't care about any of that. Uh, so that from that point forward, it was clear that he was a serious problem. But even then, because he hadn't attacked in the United States, a lot of, you know, once the Clinton administration responded, yeah you know, the Bush administration came in. They were kind of they didn't you know, they just didn't see bin Laden as a big deal. And you know the, it, which is strange because you know we na- there yeah, was a growing I-
0: body of evidence for sure that you cover yeah, and, in, in this yeah. book and and your other ones for sure. and yeah, you know, that's what I'm, what I'm hoping that, I mean, everybody should read, read this book. It's just fascinating, especially where we are now at this next turning point, essentially in the history of our, uh, United States relationship with, uh, with Afghanistan. So bringing an understanding of that based on all your years of, of study is, is so vital. This clip comes from my conversation with Donald Logue. Donald is an actor who has appeared in over 300 episodes of television and over 70 films. So some of those appearances include ER, Law & Order, SVU, Vikings, Gotham, the movie Sneakers, The Patriot, Reindeer Games, The Dow of Steve, where he won Best Actor at the Sundance Film Festival. He also co-authored a book with Danny Trejo. That's right, Hollywood legend Danny Trejo, machete. And it's called Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. In this clip, Donald talks about the question that changed his life.
5: I was in, so I went to high school on the Mexican border in a, in a town that's pretty intense, like I have to say, which I love to death. But we did have like about a thousand students my freshman year. And it was a high school that graduated 274 out of that okay. group, right? It was, um, by all accounts, it's not uh, some fancy place. It, it's uh, it's um, El Centro. Oh, yeah. Which I'll, you, you might be jumped familiar out of with planes the, there because the Naval air station yep, down yep, there jumped out. I right? did some free um, fall stuff there. So it was interesting. Cause I had a friend who was, I, I met a guy who was a seal and we, we, he knew me for a while. And then he's like, you're from El Centro. It kind of gave him a new level yeah. of understanding and kind of respect in a weird mm-hmm. way. It's like, how the hell did you get from there? But so I had this teacher who was really brilliant named Chuck Talley. And I was doing um, Speech and debate and stuff like that. So I got involved in like nerdly pursuits, which I pers- uh, which I tell all kids do. If your high school offers you some kind of fun thing, like a dr- it starts with like drama club or speech and debate or mock trial. It's like don't think those things are stupid because they might inform stuff you do for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. You know, and you make friends and so we were from that part of the corner of the state. And um, we went to, I remember going to the state speech championship sophomore year. And I was just so terrified of, uh, even in athletic competition, kids from Los Angeles or San Francisco or Orange, you know, all these places, they must eat different food. They're smarter, (laughs) they're wealthier, they're more confident, right? They're just, it's, you know, you're there to try And maybe not embarrass yourself, but no one's expecting you to win, you know? And so the next year, my junior year, Chuck Talley and my friend Steve Maddox, another teacher who were so influential in my life, they were like, why not you, man? I want you to think about something. Why not you? Those kids haven't read more than you. When I listen to you, they're not brighter than you are. I don't mean to be arrogant and egotistical, but you have to say this to yourself sometimes. Why not you? And why not me? You know, and I won the state speech and then the Boys Nation thing happened. And then all of a sudden from going like, am I going to go to JC or what am I going to do with my life? I, all these doors opened up for me that were all the result of a couple of decisions. And I can pinpoint the exact moment of each one critical decisions made when I was 16 years old that I easily could have been like, you know what, I'm going to go to Clyde's house and go smoke some weed or something right right now. Like, Oh man, forget that. And, um, and I would say that to kids that there, you know, don't underestimate the power of these little junctures in life a positive decision, contrary action, but I will say the why not me speech that Steve Maddox and, and Chuck Talley gave me will make me cry. And I say that to kids all the time. Why not you? And that does not mean I'm sitting on the couch, God, figure it out because of why not me? That's not how it happens. But you miss, to get back into these funky sayings that we've been kicking around, you miss 100% of the shots you do not take. That is it. Wayne that Gretzky, right? That um,
0: no, you know, that is it. I think it's so it powerful. I love that so much. And I think it's, I've kept you over an hour longer than I said I would. Uh, and I sincerely no, appreciate it. you taking this time, but why not me? That is exactly what I thought about BUDS, about SEAL training, 80% attrition. I'm like, hey, 20% make it through. That's where I'm going. Uh, there's no reason it's not going to be me. I'm putting in the work. It's certainly not going to be because I didn't put in the work to get but there. But that's so, and it's same so, mind-
5: it's so beautiful and amazing. And it's like, um, but there is that weird thing where you're like, someone else has done it. Yep. That means
0: I can too. Yep. This clip comes from my conversation with Danny Trejo. That's right. Hollywood legend, Danny Trejo. Machete. And you might recognize him also from the 380, I think it's over 380 films in which he has appeared. He is the most killed actor in Hollywood history. So that's Machete, that's Heat, that's Con Air, that's Desperado. I mean, obviously too many to even count, but he's also has an incredible life. Story And his book, Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. He discusses all of that in such an honest and open way. I highly recommend that you pick up that book, check out our conversation. And in this clip, he talks about what it was like to be number one on the call sheet with a film that also starred Robert De Niro. It seems like you've been working constantly, uh, for those of us on the outside that have been watching things progress, and you've been yeah. doing all sorts of things here and there, but then there seem to be these certain moments, uh, like, like Runaway Train, like Desperado, yeah. where you you have no lines, uh, like Heat, which is <laughs> one of the greatest movies of all time, yeah. and you were yeah. so fantastic in that, I just, it's amazing, uh, yeah. and, it, and yeah. Con Air, and then Spy Kids, which opens you up to a whole new generation, and then, it's of course, right. to Machete, where you are number one, on the call sheet. Yeah, I got uh, yeah. to say To be number one on the call sheet after all those years and after that upbringing and time in prison and then to have Robert De Niro walk out of his trailer and say, and I can picture it as you describe it in the book. I can just see him doing it the way you describe it. Uh, number one on the call sheet. Uh, I mean, what I mean, did that feel
6: like? Uh, well, let me I tell you, when he did that, you know, day, number one. Huh? Number. <laughs> all I'm sitting there staring at Robert De Niro in my movie. All I could say was, <laughs> Can I get you some coffee, Mr. <laughs> Come on? <laughs> and and it was hard for me to say, yeah, I'm the lead with De Niro, because he was awesome. He was awesome. I mean, and he's such a gentleman. And just, you know, he invited me to dinner. We're doing my chat. They invited me to dinner. You know, and, and uh and so we go to dinner, I take my two kids, my Danielle and, and uh and uh, uh Gilbert and Danny boy was, he was at school, he wasn't working, he was working, he was gone. And and so we go to dinner and I tell him, you know, be cool now, don't, you know, don't be kids. You know, this is Robert De Niro. The first thing Robert De Niro asked me is something about, he says, you know, uh, how do you say it? He says, Robert Rodriguez is kind of a, a I forget the word he used. A tour or something, yeah, right. A tour, you know, yeah, a tour. And I, I, uh, (laughs) My son goes, oh, yeah, I think he's a little more in blood. They start talking. The rest of the night was spent. Robert De Niro talking to my son all about the theory of film, the the lighting direction, the different modalities. And I'm like, you know, I was so proud of my son, Gilbert, because... I, I'm I'm not a student of film. I'm a working actor. I I show up. I know my lines. I don't bump into the furniture. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Stay out of the way. And but my son, he's like a student of film. You know, so he knows all these foreign directors and stuff names I can't pronounce. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it was just so beautiful, man. And Robert is just De Niro gave him the key to. To the his 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 all his a uh, memory the film
0: archives yeah, yeah amazing I love that story I love that story I love how uh, how you were surprised at your son how much he knew about this oh, this yeah, industry I, this I art blew me
6: away blew me away you know what I mean and and it's funny because Robert De Niro called me one one day on my phone says Danny I'm coming into town I got my daughter and her friend they want to go salsa dancing I'm not going to have the time. Do you know any? Yeah, so I took Robert De Niro, beautiful daughter. I took her and her friend. We went to we went salsa dancing. So I, awesome. left that, I left that message on my machine, probably until it wore out. Every I time I walk in, I'd play it. Oh yeah, i am gonna have to go with <laughs> Robert. <De Niro. laughs> I
0: love it. I love it. And originally you were brought on to heat as a uh, consultant with Eddie Bunker, is that right?
6: brought yeah. for robberies, yeah. And Rob <laughs> and 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 Michael Mann knew my <laughs> uncle in Folsom. You know, for, for, uh, for, uh, 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 he did a movie called the Jericho Mile. Mm-hmm. And so at first he called me Gilbert and people don't realize it, but in the movie, Michael Mann changed my name to Gilbert Trail in honor of my own. Yeah. He says, every time he, every time he looked at me, he just thought of Gilbert. So, so, uh, uh, we went through three scripts and they change and when they change your name, they change every script. So we cut down a lot of trees, right? And then all of a sudden, he said, "Danny, do you mind if I call you Gilbert? It makes it a lot easier." No, thank you very much. So,
0: gave my uncle better. And then you became your Gilbert in that film, and that's uh, and it, the way the way you describe it in this book. How he almost apologetically asks you uh, if you can do that. Um, and then how you took that as a tribute to someone who was obviously very impactful in your life. And, you know, I guess uh, good and bad brought, is not really a good way to describe it, but uh, it's uh, I, brought him a,
6: I brought him a picture of my uncle and, 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 and the union, the Mexican union, the union. And I told him, here, this is a picture of my uncle, but don't let the feds get it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part.
0: This clip comes from my conversation with Ashley Horner. Go to AshleyHorner.co to find out everything that she has going on. You can follow her on Instagram. She is a personal trainer. She is an influencer. She is a tactical games competitor. She is the host of Reborn with Ashley Horner. That's her podcast, which is an ironclad original. You can check out her conversations there. Just a truly inspiring human being. So check out everything she has going on. And in this clip, we talk about what it took to become a tactical games competitor. And then the tactical games, how did that come about? I saw first, I saw you like training. I'm like, okay, what's she doing now? She's on the range. I'm like, okay, yeah. what's she doing that for? Is it just fun? Like I like just the skills. And then I'm like, oh, and then I saw the tactical games. I'm like, oh, cool. She's training up for this thing maybe yeah. and also getting the skills. But uh, what was that all about? And uh, those photos were awesome. And that looked like a Thank crazy you. experience.
7: Thanks. I have my next competition coming up in like three weeks. It's going to be in North Carolina, uh, but it's like I'm always looking for something to constantly push myself to like the state of being uncomfortable and going out and competing for the tactical games and the training for that, I was definitely intimidated by just, I mean, the manipulation of all your firearms, like knowing your weapon system. And I grew up in the middle of Oklahoma in the country. And I remember like my brother and my dad going out and hunting, but I never really, uh, even though I was a, I was a tomboy growing up, I never really was into shotguns or hunting or, um, even pistols or firearms. And so I I was really uncomfortable, um, even maybe a little bit intimidated by um, ARs and just the whole like pistols and all of that. And so I was like, you know what? I, I don't need to be intimidated by this. Like, I want to become really, really, really fucking good. Yeah. And so, and then that's whenever I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sign up for the tactile games. I picked a competition. I picked a competition actually before I even did my 40 hour run. I knew that as soon as I was done, Uh, with the 40-hour run that I was going to jump right over and start training for the Tactile Games. Um, Because for me, I think that like, and and I don't know, you might um, have similar feelings. Whenever we work so hard on something and like we put everything into it, maybe it's writing a book and then you get it published. Like for me, it was like, if, if I have a goal and whether it doesn't matter if it's business or it's fitness, but it's like the moment that I finish that, it's like, I if I don't have something else planned or another goal or another challenge on the horizon, I have like this feeling of being a little bit let down, almost like a depressed type feeling because I have nothing to work towards. And so whenever I was doing the 40-hour run, I think it was a couple weeks before the 40-hour run, I was like, I'm going to sign up for the Tactical Games. This looks super gnarly. And uh, I went out and I I competed. Um, My first games was like... uh, Probably it was a week after after it was a week after the 25 hour row. And dude, I got my ass kicked. I got I, my ass kicked. I, I doubt
4: that. But. I
7: did. I did. I, well, I landed a place. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to nationals. I landed a spot in nationals. But man, it's they make it look so easy and just. You know, you're having to lift these 100-pound sandbags over a yoke and climb over the But you also have your kit on. You have your gear. You also have uh, your gun belt. You have to have all your magazines. Your rifle has to be—I mean, it's like you talk about stressing you out and then having to shoot and, like, shoot accurate. They've done a really, really good job. But the community and the tactile games and the women—I mean, you talk about, like, real-life badasses— they are like legit badasses, So So um, I'm gonna keep training for that. I'm gonna go on to nationals this fall. Um, and then I have another competition coming up in about three weeks.
0: This clip is from my conversation with Brad Leone. Brad is a chef who has a new cookbook out called Field Notes for Food Adventure. He also hosts two shows on Bon Appetit's YouTube channel. One's called It's Alive, the other is called It's Alive Going Places. We first met at the SIG hunter games in Wyoming this last year where we had a fantastic time in this clip. He talks about the ethics of hunting. What's been your experience with, uh, with that, with hunting and with, uh, with with talking to people about it and introducing them to to hunting or starting that conversation.
8: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think hunting got like a bad reputation, you know, and had a bad voice for a while. Um, And, you know, I think there are, there were a lot of bandits probably out there and there probably still are who aren't, you know, aren't going by the rules and regulations and aren't in it for, you know, the respect, but I know damn well, a good percentage of them are. And some of the best people I know, uh, especially when it comes to taking care of the planet and having respect for animals and just being overall humble, kind, beautiful people tend to be, in my opinion, a lot of them are hunter and fishermen and just outdoorsmen. Um, you know, it's, it's a religion for a lot of people in a church, you know, and, and I can relate to that. Uh, and then being able to tie it into food. I mean, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, it's, it's, it's ancient, you know, it, it's way more embedded in it than, than we want. And, you know, unless you're, unless you're growing your own almonds and, and, and milking them somewhere and, 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 <laughs> you know, and I don't know, growing tomatoes and, you know, walking around on your tiptoes and not crushing any ants, or you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. where do we, where do we stop? You know what I mean? And like, so I, I don't know. And like, for me, there's a major contradiction in it because like, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Sorry. But like, when did we start? Like who gave, okay. Like, why do we just, how come no one gives a shit about plants? You can eat the shit out of them. That life, that, that life in, in this universe doesn't, doesn't matter. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like you can chomp away on anything when as long as it's, you know, and I understand there's different, you know, they take different nervous systems and and what we deem intelligent uh, life forces in life, you know, but like, as we're finding out, you know, and our, you know, big cocky human brains is that plants and fungus and fish and other species are super intelligent, you know? And like, I'm okay with eating all of them, you know, but like you gotta, cause that's just, I don't, there isn't a better system yet. You know what I mean? Like we haven't, we haven't figured, I don't know. And I think at the end of the day, no one wants factory farming except for the prick doing it and making money. You know what I mean? Like, so like, you know, people, and the responses I've gotten from being able to do some hunting, like pheasant hunting and, and, wild boar in Hawaii and, um, and fishing is like, it's a respect and it's just being transparent. Like this is, if you're going to the supermarket and you're getting your ribeye or your salmon filet from the Faroe islands or whatever, you're just not seeing the, you know, come on, like it's all, you know, it's just a, a little clean piece and you know, no face anymore, no feathers, no nothing this is happening on a massive scale. We we you know, 400 million pigs a year, or whatever, you know, fact check that number, but like, you know, it's, it's massive. So like being able to harvest an animal, whether you're farming it yourself and just being the accountability for what's going into it, you know, because, you know, as as we found out, the industrialization of the food system uh, certainly had some flaws and, uh, and not the best interest for our health uh, it seems in some of the aspects you know uh is hunting gonna solve world hunger no obviously not you know but but good practicing and localization of it uh and, you know covid showed that too how fragile that big monopolized systems are you know and and cyber attacks like things need to get a little more smaller and and less monopolized in, in certain aspects, when it comes to food right uh, and that also will be able to reduce the environmental impact and overall health i believe and you know, you go into the supermarket and look at some of the, the produce and the meat and and like, we're unfortunate, Don't get me wrong that it's an option. And, you know, financially is another thing Good food's expensive, especially when you're buying it at a supermarket, you know? Um, So there's a lot of problems with it, but like, I guess to wrap that question up in a way, like, yeah, I think just no one, the way it's been perceived is just, again, no one wants the bad, the bad practice, you know, everyone's sick of it. You know, let's just, let's just figure a better way out. There seems like a lot of people who are, smarter at it and better at it than me that certainly are doing it. It's just, I don't know. I guess it's a big problem.
0: Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, COVID did open a few people's eyes for sure to how fragile society can actually be. Um, and, and most of the world obviously deals with that, you know, here we're, we're insulated yeah. from, from a lot of that, uh, uh, having worrying about the next, the next meal, malaria, like all these things uh, that most of the rest of the world has to worry about we're, you know, fairly, fairly insulated in this country. It also makes it part of the process.
8: People dying of starvation, all, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, in in the world, you know, every year and like how much we waste, what? It's like 40 or something percent of all food or something. It's like, it's wild.
0: It's It's insane. Yeah, there was, what was it? A book or like three or four years ago, a book or a video movie, I forget what it was, but uh, just talking about how much waste there is. And that's the other part about hunting. Like when we put uh, an elk on the table out there, there's nothing's wasted because we right. know where it came from and how much work went in. And that's the other part of it. Once you do it, I think once you're out there and you're doing it and you're bringing that food back and you're processing it and then you're cooking it, and you're doing all those things. You're you're not wasting any of it. And then for me, it is is shocked just actually how inexpensive some things are at the supermarket. Like knowing how much went in to what we just did with a mule right. deer or an elk or a moose or whatever it yep. might be, and then seeing you know one ninety nine or you know five ninety nine. Amazing that it's for me anyway. I'm like, how you had to raise that thing, you had to do all this, you had to transport it, you had to put it on a shelf, you're paying all these people at each one of those stages to get it there. And I was like, wow, why is this only five bucks? I mean, it's crazy they, just how much goes into making yeah. that happen.
8: That's because they process it like a grain, you know, it's just it's it's a numbers thing and it's, a, it's so scaled that they can sell you this big, giant, weird pork loin that's as white as a piece of paper when you cook it and has you know, uh, almost no fat on it because it's just like this big, you know, weird, like that's, that's not what a pig looks like. You know, like I've seen some really healthy pigs, whether wild or, or, or farmed and like, man, that, sometimes it can, it can look like steak, you know, like I can get nice and red and pink and beautiful fat on it. So, I mean, yeah, once you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've, once you see the light, I, I can't go back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, once you, you know, it's just, I'm, being able to uh, and where I live is great man i mean i I shot two deer this year um and you know not even hunting that aggressively, and um you know a bunch of geese and uh some you know and we got some pheasant and you know some uh, some tuna, we go fishing right here and spear fishing and you know sea bass and being able to just process that with a, with some friends and then being able to grow vegetables and stuff i mean i'm I just moved up here, but in the next couple of years man, I want to get this place where we could be you know, providing a lot of the food that we need through, you know, just growing, you know, great sun and soil. Like it'd be crazy not to, good water. Um, and then having the ocean and the land, it's just such a, you know, it reminds me of like friends in Hawaii, right? They just have that like ocean and land that they can, you know, really get dialed in and provide off of.
0: This clip comes from my conversation with Clint Smith. Clint Smith served in Vietnam, In the Marine Corps. We talk about that extensively on the podcast. And he now runs Thunder Ranch up in Oregon with his wife, Heidi. And if you have not been out to train with Clint Smith, I highly recommend you put that at the top of your list for 2022. This is
9: my one really bad Clint story. So we got in a hole. I got in a hole. We're there. And um, it's dark. And you know what I mean, when you can put your hand out, but you can't see it. Yeah, that's dark. Oh, yeah. Okay, that dark.
0: You've been there. Oh yeah. Okay. And is it triple canopy? No, like, so you nah, this to... is
9: kind of open still in the plains. Okay. So we're basically uh, west of Quang Tree before you actually get into. So and we're east of um, the rock pile. So we're in an area around what's called Camlo. Okay. And so we were there and just kind of in the jungle. And um, the guy goes like, "Dude, I gotta get some sleep." I go, like, okay, cool. So you're on watch. Yeah. He goes, like, uh, wake me up. Here's my watch. Wake me up. Okay, 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 cool. And each each smaller maneuver element had their own watch, or are you guys with... No, 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 no. We were online, okay. and so everybody dug in. And then, so, like, you're online. And then they basically, they don't put out um, LPs, they okay. don't want anybody forward okay. So because they're You're really not sure with it's that were kind of online. And then they kind of turn the ends in from what I remember. Okay. Okay. So that yep. you kind of don't get sort of flanked, so to speak. Yep. And then uh, they did put LPs behind us. Okay. Which would kind of make sense. Uh, listing posts. Yep. And, which is actually, yeah, that's about all you do. And uh, so all the stuff that everyone knows that's been so, there. So you're yeah. on watch. Yeah, so I'm on watch, and so like, I'm with my guy, and the time goes by, and I go, hey dude, and he goes like, hey, watch a little bit longer, I'm tired. I go, okay, cool.
0: And essentially you're just listening because just listening. You, can't you can't see, see anything. There's no okay. night vision, no, there's no-, no, no nothing,
9: no night vision. No, we own the nights, okay, none of that shit, which I still laugh at when people say that dumb shit. Like, hey, <laughs> we own the night, no, 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 okay. No, 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 no. So this is where I made my first decision. About whatever time it was, however dark it was, I heard something in front of me. I knew it was the right direction, that it shouldn't be making noise. So I decide to, by the way, not very many people know this uh, at all, okay? So like this is, I'm doing this because we're friends. So, like, I'm there, and I kind of go, like, oh, fuck. I'm so, dry. hey, dude, I think there's, oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, dude, I think there, no, uh, uh, okay, it's okay. I go, like, all right, uh, that... okay, that's it. I've had it. I'm literally about to shit myself. So, I just pull out a frag, pull the pin, chunk the shit out of this bitch. My best Wyoming, what the hell, okay, and hopefully I didn't say anything. No, it. good. Okay, and it lands and goes off. And then, everybody online opened up, okay? And I got all my tax money in that next minute that I've ever paid in American ammunition because everyone shot the shit out of everything in front. And people go, that's very not very tactile. I got it, okay? So then, the next thing, when they got everyone to stop, because, you know, it's what Marines do, they shoot shit, okay, it's just the way it is, okay? so. When they got everyone to stop, um, then somebody who was the gunnery sergeant came down and go, who threw that fucking grenade? And I go, oh, this doesn't sound good. So I go like, oh. You know what I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I kept the grenade ring for like three months in my pocket. No one ever knew. I, no one ever knew it. it was me. Okay, so like the dude, <laughs> of course, when the thing went off, the guy is sleeping. He jumps straight up, you know. And he's like pow, 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 pow. You know, right. I and mean? you're like, well, and people go, that's not very good fire discipline. You know, that all depends on whether or not you've ever been there before. Exactly. You know, it's easy for people to go, well, you know, real man, hey, you knew you'd have got a an e-tool and went out there. No, what? a real man no. wouldn't have been there. He'd have been at home in the back seat. With a girl of like a car, he was just buying until he got drafted. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and I, uh, you can ask Heidi. I I very rarely ever tell that, but because it sort of sounds chicken shitty. No, it doesn't. But I kind of go like, "Hey, man, you know, dude, I'm 18." I mean, Uh, yeah, it's a. What was out there? uh, Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever it was, it got blown up and shot. Okay, so we it. did. We did the next day. Uh, we did the next day. Get up when it was daylight, and we went through. And there were people there, but they, I believe, were killed by the airstrike the day before.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. This was the second part of a two-part series looking at the best of Danger Close from twenty twenty-one. If you liked any of these clips, be sure to check out the full episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Jack Carr YouTube channel. And thank you so much to Six Hour for making all of this possible. Thank you so much for crushing it each and every day with all that you do. I am fired up to move into 2022 with all that we have. And everybody else that supported this podcast, whether it was with a, just listening to it, whether it was a download, a five-star rating and review, thank you so much for making this all possible. I have thoroughly enjoyed spending this time with you and I look forward to 2022.
8: get your podcasts.